What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. And this is my interview with the Oscar-nominated composer for Babylon, Justin Hurwitz, and Zoe Rose Bryant's interview with the Oscar-nominated costume designer, Mary Zofries. Tell me, you miss the silence? No. Shouldn't stand in the way of progress. What are your thoughts for the future? We have to redefine the form. We've got to innovate. We've got to inspire. I promised you a sight. You're getting a sight. I love your recording studio, by the way. That looks amazing. Oh, thank you. It's it's really not a studio. It's kind of the corner of where I live. But it's I've got I've got what I need, which is a real piano the MIDI controller, and the computer. I mean, if you told me that you had a trumpet in every single room, I wouldn't put it past you. (laughs) Uh, But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about your Oscar-nominated work on Babylon. It's a score that has drummed up a ton of excitement and so much talk, um, especially considering we don't get to hear from you that often. It seems every time Damien Chazelle pumps out a new movie, that's when we get another master stroke of genius from you. And Babylon fits right alongside your previous works uh, as a score that I'm sure is going to get constantly replayed over and over and over again as the years go on. So congratulations, first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to start off by asking, how does it work? Damien calls you and says, I've got an idea. Or do you wait till there's a screenplay? How do those early conversations essentially start? Because I have to imagine that you're probably writing new music all throughout the entire process uh, from the time that conceptualizing the idea all the way up until the final mix. Yeah, I guess it depends a little bit project to project. It's never as formal as I get a call. In the case of Whiplash, let's see, I found out about that one because Damien and I um, used to meet up at a Starbucks like once a week just to hang out and work on our computers. Like we both bring our computers, but we'd both be working on separate things. Because we were, at the time, we were trying to get La La Land off the ground and we were, it was kind of stuck. So we were just sort of doing different things. And he was just like, oh, I wrote this, I wrote a a new script about a drummer. And that was like the first I heard of it. It was after the script was written. First man, I found out about it. Like as we were making La La Land, he was kind of overseeing Josh Singer writing that script. That was like the only one of his movies that he didn't, that Damien didn't write. So I kind of heard about it in the background while we were making La La Land. And then Babylon, 
I heard about it about a year before I actually got a script. Actually, at the moment I found out about it, Damien and I were in the green room uh, in Paris about to go out uh, for some La La Land concerts. And we were just like hanging out um, backstage and just catching up because I hadn't seen him in a little while. And he told me he was like in the process of writing, researching and writing um, this 1920s movie. And he told me a little bit about it. And then it was about another year that was fall of 18. And it was about the fall of it was fall of 19 when he finally had a draft for me to read. And as soon as he had a draft, as soon as he had a draft, then I got started with him. We we met, we marked up the script um, and just started building it from there. But um but yeah, it, it all it all started with uh, I, my work started once I could read a script. Yeah, totally. And I have to imagine that the initial script for this must have been super long because the movie itself is over 180 minutes long. So was that daunting in a way to have to write hours and hours upon uh, music for this, knowing that I think it's what, two hours of music made it into the final cut, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, I think it's a little over a little over two hours of music in the movie. It's something like an hour thirty eight on the on the on the soundtrack album. There were just some things in the movie that were so background that they didn't go in the album or things that were longer on the movie that we cut down for the album. It's it's about two hours of music in the movie. And I mean, yeah, it was it was daunting. I think it was I was more just like entertained by the script. When I read the script, I was purely entertained because it was such a such a wild and funny and and at times moving script. And there was so much to it, just gags and set pieces and dramatic scenes and so many storylines. And so I remember getting to the end and just being like, wow, what a what a movie this is going to be. And then starting to wrap my head around, oh, my God, there's going to be a lot of music in this. I didn't really start to grapple with it until, like I said, Damien and I met and um, we just started marking up the script. Like, actually, I brought an iPad with the script and just started with the the little digital pen thing, marking the spots, like the start points and the end points of where there would be music as far as Damien knew. And he did, these movies are pretty much in his head before he shoots them. So he did really know where there would be music and where there wouldn't be. Some of it was clear to me from the script because it would say Sydney plays the trumpet, but there was a lot that wasn't clear um, where those things would start, where they would end, where they would be performance and then where they would be score or where they would turn from performance into score. A lot of times it would say the band at the party plays. But what I didn't understand, what I couldn't understand from the script alone is that Damien wanted to then carry that music have that music carry us away from the party, carry us to a different a different part of the house, outside the house, to a completely different scene. So I had to sort of understand the architecture he wanted because it wasn't always obvious. Sometimes it wasn't clear at all from the script. Other times he would write mu music into the script that wasn't even performance. He'd just say it was clear that it was going to be a montage and he'd write, you know, fast music carries us from here, fast music ends. He'd put that six pages later, he'd put fast music ends or whatever. So I had some idea, even when it wasn't performance of when there would be music, but I still had to understand a lot because like I said, these, these movies are in his head and they're in nobody else's head at that time. 
Yeah, that must be really tough, I imagine. But hey, it takes a great director to successfully communicate that vision to the other collaborators, you being one of his closest collaborators, of course. Um, I want to know actually specifically about Sidney Palmer, because so many of the uh, scenes in the movie, he's playing the trumpet and it's on screen music that you have to write for. Was there ever a point in production where you went through the trouble to write a piece of music, they shot it to match the music and then later on, they were like, you know what? This music actually, we need to change it a little bit. And they had to just redo the whole thing. <laughs> Nothing like that happened on this movie where we had to throw out a piece at that point. Um, we obviously threw out many, 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 many things early on because that's just the process Damien and I go through. I did the piano demo after piano demo and then MIDI demo after MIDI demo before we settle settle on the right pieces of material there was nothing after the movie shot that just got cut mm -hmm. um there are little things that do change um luckily because like i said damien is such a it's in his head and he's such a planner and we've gone through not just that marking up the script phase but we've gone through extensive storyboarding for all of those performances so damien is doing literally hundreds and maybe thousands of pages of storyboards. I've seen stacks of, of paper a foot high on his desk where every page is a pencil on paper storyboard. So he does frame after frame after frame, stacks and stacks of them. And then he cuts animatics um, of those storyboards to the demos I've, I'm making. So by the time we even get to shooting it, he's he knows where the camera is every beat of the music, like it's that planned. He's been doing that since Whiplash, by the way, yeah. um, for these kinds of sequences. That said, things do change. Um, sometimes Damien and Tom Cross, the editor, sometimes they just have to move a shot. They want to steal a shot from a different place and move it because it's just a it works better a different place. Sometimes they 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 roll a shot or they move sync in some way. So things do change. So later in post, I am as I'm writing all that new score, all that new underscore and whatnot that I need to write to the picture. I'm also chasing a lot of things, not a lot of things, but some things, definitely some amount of things that are changing in those pre-record tracks. And one of the sort of funniest puzzles I end up uh, finding myself having to do on these movies is with solos that were written and recorded or improvised and recorded in any way, solos that were locked before we shot the movie. And then the actor learns those solos. So like Giovanna Depo, who plays Sydney in this movie, he was in trumpet lessons for months, learning the, you know, exactly where to have his fingers every moment, you know, perfect timing. He was learning the perfect timing with his fingers on the trumpet to absolutely nail those solos. And he, he absolutely nailed them. But then we get to post. And like I said, things change for just purely editorial reasons. So now the fingers are out of sync. The, the plane is out of sync, sometimes not just with the trumpet, sometimes with the whole band, like everything's out of sync. And we had taken such care on set because I'm on set, too, for any music days. I'm on set to make sure that the band's doing the right thing, that the, the actor's doing the right thing. And then things are all of a sudden like no longer in sync in post-production. So I have to occasionally write new solos or write entirely new band parts that fit what we're now seen on screen, what now got like totally resynced on scene on screen. So it's this very weird musical puzzle I have to do where I'm like, I have to, I'm writing like whatever the best musical thing is that will also fit 
the fingers and the timing on screen. So it may not be exactly, it may not be if I had, if I could write anything in the world, if I could write any solo in the world, it may not be what I'd write, but it's like, okay, what's what's the best thing I can do musically that also fits what we're seeing? So it's this very funny puzzle that I end up doing and it's it's happened on, um, La La, it happened on La La Land and, and it happened a few times on Babylon too. Yeah, would you say that the drum heavy beats of the score, you know, they feel very, tribal and animalistic in a way almost to like connect to like how explicitly indulgent the times were before the Hayes code began. I don't know if that's necessarily the inspiration and where that came from. Uh, but can you tell me just a little bit about that sort of animalistic tribal quality to the, some of the score? I mean, there, there are so many just layers and influences in the score and there's at, at the heart of um, anytime we have a drum set, there are two incredible drummers, um, two of the best drummers in the world who, who worked on this. Peter Erskine, who um, played some of the, the more traditional jazz stuff. And then Gary Novak, who's more of like kind of a funk fusion. I mean, he does play straightaway jazz, but he also has more contemporary influences. So there's a lot of real rocking out um, on the drums that's going on um, in the Gary cues. Also, we used um, calfskin heads. We went to, uh, I think there's a place, Drum Doctors, that will, you know, hook you up with just the exactly the kit you want. So we went with real vintage sets with that. Again, like, I don't know, there's just something about using calfskin. It's, 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 it's warm and it's real and it's analog sounding um, in a way that some of the more modern equipment is, isn't. So that's where we started with drums and then just like layers and layers of other percussion of lots of world percussion of groups of Latin percussionists and African percussionists and Asian percussionists coming in just to add all sorts of flavors um, to the score. And then lots of really weird percussion that I added over the top, just to build, build, build the percussion in these tracks. Like um, Voodoo Mama has something like a hundred layers of percussion in it. And a lot of it is just, uh, you know, wood hitting wood. And that's, you know, that's kind of as primal as it gets. What's more, what's more basic and elemental than wood hitting wood. So I, I was, I had sticks hitting sticks. I had wood boards hitting wood boards. I had wood boards hitting the floor of where I am right now in the corner of my apartment. I had, um, we had claps. We had a lot of layers of claps, different groups of people clapping. We had, um, at one point we were in the studio and um, we were working with our group of, of Latin players and Alex Acuno was leading the group. And, um, and I was showing them basically what we had already, what we had built out of all the many, many layers in Voodoo Mama. And I was like, what can we add to this to add even more of this sort of like wood sound to it? And he pulled out these shoe trees. Um, I don't know why he had shoe trees. He, maybe he's used them before, but shoe trees are... I, I used to call them shoe horns, but no, shoe horn is wrong. Shoe horn is what you use to put the shoe on. A shoe tree is that thing that's kind of shaped like a foot that prevents the shoe from collapsing you know it's like the wood sort of shoe shaped thing that goes in the shoe and he pulls out these shoe trees and he's like let me try these and then he starts slamming them on the cartridge box which is the box that all the percussion gets shipped to the studio in so he's slamming shoe trees on a cartridge box we're like that sounds really cool let's add that in so that's a long way of saying that there are just so many things that go into the percussion of this uh of this movie i guess this isn't percussion no it's not percussion but it's just like more eccentric stuff i was i was uh playing 
kazoos and slide whistles and party horns and stuff on a lot of these tracks just layering lots of stuff um into these tracks to give it uh this very eclectic and eccentric feel that was almost like we didn't want it we didn't want to even be able to place exactly where a lot of the influences were from there's this there's this one track uh on the on the album called king of the circus mm-hmm. where it's when jack it's kind of jack uh, the brad pitt character's entrance into that first party he bursts through the door and the cue is kind of going a little before but the cue explodes when he bursts through the door and the the underpinning of it, the the real heart of the track are these vocals that i had laid i had laid down many layers of myself as a demo and then we brought some other people in to add to them but it's the vocal basically goes and it's it's a like made up accent that i have no idea how to describe and when we were in the studio trying to add more people to it i had no idea how to describe i'm like it's kind of this like like invented exoticism and it's like it's not from you can't it doesn't sound like this place or that place it's just sort of like eccentric and exotic and we were playing in a little bit into that sort of 1920s you know fascination with the far off and the exotic but i couldn't really say where it was from it just sounded yeah just kind of like uh, uh strange and 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 eccentric and so there were many many ideas like that in the score um and we just built built those tracks with um, many many layers of things like that. I, I believe it's uh, "Call Me Manny," uh, the one that goes. Can you just tell me where the rhythmic quality of that came from? Because I swear to you, I could I could possibly imagine hearing that one day at like an EDM concert, remixed or something. It just has this incredible tempo to it, and such it's just such a bop. I, I, I like it almost feels like when I listen to the soundtrack, like it wasn't a, a music score, but I'm listening to a, a band at times. Yeah. I mean, OK, I, first of all, I would love if somebody wants to remix that, if some DJ or producer wants to actually make it truly modern um, and play it at clubs, that would be pretty cool. I was definitely thinking, yeah, a dance music, the feeling of modern house or EDM or something, but on a sax on a saxophone that was one of the first ideas Damien and I had was pulling from different influences some and sometimes more from rock and roll and sometimes more from modern dance music but doing it on instruments like um you know that you could have had in jazz bands so I just started playing around with um uh, in, in virtual instrument land early on in the process after I had found the tune at the piano because we always start at the piano. That's where I go through many, many ideas of piano demos before Damien sort of, uh, you know, something strikes him. And then once we have uh, tunes that we like, we move to the virtual instrument land. I start mocking things up. So I was playing a virtual baritone sax and doing it, but with those off beats and just a drum loop, you know, underpinning it at the time before we got um, Peter Erskine and Gary Novak to come in. And um, so playing it on the virtual sax and then went um, I went Googling and searching YouTube. OK, who plays dance music on a sax? Came across this guy who was all, already well known. I didn't know him, but he's well known. This guy, Leo P or Leo Pellegrino, who does exactly that. He plays dance music on a sax. 
And there was um, there were some viral videos of him about 10 or 15 years ago, literally dancing in the I think the New York subway while he played his baritone sax, like kicking his legs and spinning around while he plays this sort of, you know, bouncy dance music on a sax. He's got this band now, Too Many Zoos, which are they're awesome. And um, so I, I got to know Leo and 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 what he what he does. And is like, this is obviously the guy to play this music. So um Leo and I started doing remote sessions because he's he's he was based in Philadelphia. I think he might be living more in New York now. But anyway, he was in Philadelphia at the time that we were recording these cues. So he and I were working over Zoom and he was recording from his bedroom um, and we were just laying down the laying down these tracks. And it was funny because for all the rest of the music, every other musician um, there were a few others that weren't from LA. So I had to do remote sessions. There was a, a player in Baltimore. I did some recording with him in Baltimore and Pittsburgh and uh, players elsewhere. But for the most part, we tried to get um, the musicians into the greatest studios we could because great studios just sound great. If you, if you have the luxury of going into a room like Capitol or United, those rooms just, they, you hear the history in them. You hear the warmth of them. They just sound incredible. So when possible, we we tried to get players into incredible rooms like that. But Leo, we were recording on in a bedroom on a bedroom mic, and it didn't matter because it's the player at the heart of it. It's the player and the style and the personality, and all of that trumps the the technology and the the room and the if if, if push comes to shove, go with the player. That's that's sort of the lesson I learned. Um, and and Leo was just like he's a one of a kind. He's a one of a kind musician. That's amazing. I love it. Um, I know you've been open before about that. There were uh, some pointed out comparisons to uh, previous uh, score work. Uh, like some people pointed out similarities to La La Land and things of that nature. And you've said that you're it, it makes sense because you are the connective tissue. You're, you're the same guy. It's not like somebody else stepped in to do the music necessarily. So you do have your own style and way of doing things. But can you tell me just a little bit about what it is that you have learned uh, over the evolution, if you will, from that Oscar winning score to your Oscar nominated score now with Babylon, what would you say has been the single biggest change that you have felt as a composer since then? Yeah, I mean, like you're like you're getting at in the, you know, two plus hours of music, there are definitely a handful of cues where we are going into the same emotional world that we are in uh, for La La Land, certain the couple of cues that are definitely drawing on similar melancholy romantic feelings um so yeah as the same composer i dip into the same chord changes and you know turns of melody and and whatnot so that's just i think that's uh that's uh how it goes as a as a composer as an artist you know i, I think it's um i've said this before but i think it's like i try to walk the line between having my having a voice that's identifiable and that's true to me and but never not hopefully not truly repeating myself so i think that's i think it's a good thing to to have a voice to be identifiable and i appreciate that in other composers when i can hear a few phrases of their music and know who it is but i think none of us ever want to just completely repeat what we've done so i think that's just sort of a balance people try to strike um any creative people but um yeah it's like if i hear a james horner score i know what a james horner score sounds like or a hans zimmer score john williams score i know yeah. what a justin Hurwitz score sounds like well, I I appreciate that. That's um, that's something that I I care about. You know, having a having a voice. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. There's lots and lots of music in this score that is hopefully very very different than. I mean, 
every every score we do, the the biggest goal, kind of the highest level goal that Damien and I have is we say, what is the La La Land sound? What is the first man sound? What is the Babylon sound? And we hope that there's going to be a sound that belongs just to that movie. So as, aside from the couple of cues, you know, that you, you mentioned that are, you know, reminiscent of other things we've done, I think there is a concoction. Hopefully there is a concoction in the Babylon sound with the, you know, aggressive horns and the the, the dance beats and the the sort of primal drums and percussion and the the circus sounds and the kazoos and slide whistles and all these sounds come together into a concoction that is just the Babylon sound, um, we hope. And that, that's what we try to do on every movie. I would say score to score, I try to learn new things and I try to go deeper in areas that I've gone before or have never gone before. And one, one area I... You know, what definitely went two areas I definitely went deeper on this score are um, picking musicians and then getting into uh, the production of the tracks um, more than I have in the past. So I talked about Leo, Leo Pellegrino, an incredible find for me, not if I mean, it, lots of people knew him, but for me, an incredible find, um, just the perfect person to play that music. And that extends to other parts in the score where um, I'd never done this before, spent a lot of time um, casting the musicians that, that came into the studio or that recorded from a bedroom, casting the musicians in any case. And um, so many of the musicians on this score um, are the, the the incredible uh, group of session players. Like the, the orchestral players are largely who we've worked with score to score. But there are a bunch of really specific musical voices on this score, certainly with the trumpets. Um, the trumpet was such an important piece to find. And it ended up uh, really being a combination of three of the best, three incredible trumpeters who all came from different places and all came after, again, a bunch of searching, which I had never done. So I, again, went on YouTube looking for trumpeters. Let's just look through a bunch of trumpeters and um, came across this guy. Also well-known, just not wasn't to me, uh, Sean Jones who's based in Baltimore. I think he's originally from Chicago. Now he's based in Baltimore. Incredible, incredible trumpeter. And um, he just sort of leapt out as, okay, this seems like the, the sound of Sydney. It took a few years to be able to get Sean to come to LA and record. He's very busy touring and teaching and all sorts of things. So in the meantime, we we worked with other trumpeters who were new to us, who we hadn't worked with, um, who ended up being just absolutely perfect for cer uh, certain cues on the score. So this guy, uh, Dante Winslow, who's based in LA, just absolutely nailed uh, some of the stuff on the score, some of the gorgeous ballads he played. Um, Sydney's final solo, that's called Gold Coast Rhythm Sydney Solo that's all Dante the uh, the kind of the Gold Coast Rhythm Jacks uh party which is another really beautiful trumpet solo all Dante a few other things then this guy Ludo Lewis came from Paris and played just lots of the lead trumpet and a lot of the really just bright he just has this bright biting tone that nobody else has on the trumpet so Ludo was just so perfect for a lot of the a lot of the lead stuff and then finally we got Sean to come to town and he just laid down some of the solos at that opening party and the Damascus thump solo, which is that really powerful scene later where Sydney's on set and um, 
you know, we're in Sydney's head for a lot of it. And then we're cutting away to all these other storylines. Jack is on a crusade and Manny's on a crusade. And it's just sort of like, it's a very dramatic part of the movie. A lot of, a lot of things are kind of coming to a head. So Sean played a, a lot of those really important solos, um, but it was really those three trumpeters that came together. And like I said, it was really a search for me, which I'd never done before, just going out and looking for the right musicians with the right styles, the right voices, the right personalities to play these these pieces of music. Um, same goes with uh, beyond Leo P on the baritone sax. There's one other really important sax player, Jacob Sesney, who I was just looking for the right sound to play a lot of these. I talk in the in interviews about, you know, the unhinged, the wild saxophone, the, the screaming saxes, the wailing sax as well. I, I wish I got to talk more about the person who played it. It was Jacob Sesney, who, again, was not known to me. But I asked the contractor, I said, like, can you help us find some players who haven't played on film scores before, are not in the um film you know the the scoring world but maybe come from the club world the jazz club world or do other things and they're going to come with their own uh voices and personalities and backgrounds and um it was again youtube although it came from the contractor he sent me this little grainy youtube video of jacob playing it was like handheld iphone footage of jacob playing at a club and he jacob was just like going crazy owning the stage just like absolutely creating a moment and i was like okay that let's bring this guy into the studio and jacob ended up just absolutely knocking it out of the park with you know a lot of these a lot of these solos um anytime i talk about the wailing saxes that's jacob so um yeah that was getting back to your question that was something that was new to me was going and casting and really looking out going outside the box and trying to find really special musicians who, I, who would just fit what we were doing um and then uh the other part that i mentioned is uh yeah just getting a little more into production really getting into digging into the many many options and the many many layers that we would get in the studio like i mentioned there's something like a hundred layers of percussion in voodoo mama alone and this goes with many of the tracks we would bring in many many different ensembles of percussionists from all over in the world and sometimes not even just world just different ideas with the wood all the layers of wood and the different types of many different things so i would i would take these tracks home and this is something i've never done before is just comb through them comb through all the many takes of percussion comb through the many takes of peter erskine's drums and gary novak's drums and the many uh, takes of of piano comping and guitar comping and just all the many many rhythm section tracks and just try to yeah just try to find the best version of every moment and sometimes move things around to create new things because these are genius players who are giving you their genius ideas I mean this is starting with their especially with rhythm section tracks which are inherently open to a lot of improvisation. A lot of times you just give these players slashes in their parts or just some basic rhythm, rhythmic indications and they they are improvising or they are bringing a lot of their own ideas to it. So you're starting with their incredible ideas, but to be able to like go through and almost in the way that Damien weeds through my ideas to, to sort of bring the best out of my ideas, to comb through my good ideas for my best ideas. I was trying to do the same with all of these many, many incredible musicians, which is comb through the 40 options of 
of solos or drum parts or, or guitar parts, whatever, and just find the best moments and the best parts and put it all together. And um, that's something I've never done before is go through things in that detail. So that's part of why this took so long to create and to mix and all of it is there were just, I kind of got into the weeds with this stuff more than I ever have on any score by far. Well, the proof is in the pudding. I, the, the final output is extraordinary. Um, final question. I, I, this is something I just want to know for myself. The final track of the film that plays during Manny's, uh, call it montage, if you will, uh, when he's in the theater, it's a best of hits moment where it's just all these different tracks that you've heard previously throughout the movie all kind of coming together. Was there a discussion ever about there being essentially something new or where, like where did the conversation come into let's fold in like all these different themes and tracks and put them all together to create this singular final track? Yeah, it's funny. You call it montage. We end up calling it finale on the album. Yeah. Damien and I were trying to after like as, as I created it, I said to Damien, like, what should we call this? And he said his idea was climax because he was like. It's kind of the climax of the movie, but it also has sort of like that sort of sexual connotation, which would just it's so Babylon. It's like the explosion at the end of Babylon. Why not call it climax? I thought I was like, that is a great idea. And we called it that. And then like as I was finalizing, like the, the all the data, the label, the copy for the record label, I got cold feet. I was like, let's call it finale. Like I'm scared of calling it climax. And now I so regret not calling it climax. Like that just would have been such a great title. <laughs> I love it. That's hilarious. But um, uh, to, to answer the, your actual question, no, it, we never the idea was always we never really talked about a totally new theme the idea from the beginning of it was basically to use it as an opportunity to bring every everything back from the movie every melody every rhythm every every idea every musical idea from the movie and kind of put them in a blender and create it was a in some ways uh, an idea we've done before, like the the epilogue of La La Land brings back every melody from the movie, but it was a very, very different strategy because whereas the epilogue of La La Land kind of strings them together one into the next in kind of an elegant way. This was, we wanted to like mash them together and have them over each other in a very kind of chaotic messy cacophonous way at the at the same time it took a lot of care and planning so that it would not be a true cacophony you could still make out a snippet of this a snippet of that like they're very carefully placed how they where they are staggered what goes over what um, I was drawing a little bit on my experience with, you know, counterpoint, you know, this, this, the, all the Bach I learned in school of like how you put a melody over a melody, but it was a lot more, it was a lot messier than that on purpose. At the same time, we, it was still very thoughtful in how things were placed. And another thing I've never done before is really think about space, the, the left and the right of it all, the panning, the left and the right, but also distance using reverb to really create distance or closeness between things. So you have, uh, snippets of melodies from the movie and rhythms from the movie popping up on the left and then on the right and then further away using reverb to make things sound further and closer so you can get things kind of swirling around and you re to really use space to help us so that we could have so many things over each other 
but still be able to make out what they were because they were given their own space and their own distance and all of that. That's another thing I've never thought about that production wise is using space that way. So yeah, so in the end, we just wanted to create something that was um, the right crafted, definitely crafted, but also just going right up to that line of chaos and noise, but without hopefully without going over it. And I know I asked you this question when we met the other day in person, but I want our listeners to also hear as well. Um, so far in the feature film world, we've only heard you work with uh, Damien at this point. I want to just know what the mythology is. Uh, you know, are, are you waiting for someone to knock on your door? Uh, are you working on other projects with other filmmakers? Are you exclusive to Damien only? Uh, what is next for Justin Hurwitz? Well, yeah, I mean, like I told you the other day, when Damien's got a project, I'm going to go all in on it. You know, I'm very, very committed to Damien. He's loyal to me. I'm loyal to him. It's also just in my personality. Like, I'm a very, very obsessive person. And so when he's got a score, it's kind of all it, it is all I want to work on. And however many years it takes, it was about three years on Babylon, like, four years on La La Land with a stop and a start in it. But if you add it all up, it's like, I just want to go all in and I want to make whatever we're doing together. I want to make it absolutely as great as it can be. And I want to have no regrets. And I always have regrets and I come away with so many regrets and I listen back to our old stuff and I try to be proud of it. And I am, but all I hear is like, Oh, I wish I could have just take gotten one more shot at that or mix that a little differently. So it's like, I'd like to give it everything I have. And then that's another thing too about film. And it's actually like part of the the Jack speech in the El Jack Eleanor scene in Babylon is like these things go into a vault and then somebody pulls them out and they can watch it years later. And I, I kind of, I had been sort of thinking this idea for along for many years about our work, which is that once it's done, it's done. And then it is just, it's like, it's not like stage where it's a vault every night. It's a little different and different companies can do it differently. It's like, it's a fixed, it's in fixed form. It is just what we lock, what we finish. Once the, the grownups say pencils down, we're out of time, we're out of money. And they're always, you know, grownups on these projects who force us to finish it. That's kind of why Damien and I finish it is because like we're, we have to, we're forced to finish it. I think we would both tinker forever. But once the grownups say you're done, it's, um, it's going to be what it is forever. Or, you know, as long as earth exists, humans, you know, want to still listen to films and music and stuff like that. So for a while, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be what it is. I want to, um, have uh as few regrets as possible and my point my point is that like once we finish these things they're finished and that's what people are going to watch that's what people are going to listen to hopefully for a while it's kind of out of our control how long people want to listen and watch the stuff but hopefully for a while and i just want to feel like i gave stuff everything i could possibly give it so it's as good as it can possibly be um getting back to your question will i work with other filmmakers i think if the right project, the right filmmaker came along at the right time where I wasn't going down that Damien Chazelle rabbit hole that I think I'm just always going to go down. Yes, theoretically, I, I've been saying that for a few years. I'm open to the right thing if it comes along. It just hasn't come along. I've been on Babylon for a while. There is a window right now, uh, to be honest, 
where um, Damien hasn't, he's deciding what he wants to make right and make next. So I think there is a window, but there are some other things that probably are going to kind of close in and fill this time. Like it was announced a few weeks ago that La La Land is going to be adapted for Broadway. And I haven't started on it. I'm waiting to read the book. Um, you know, there's been a lot of adaptation to go from film script to book and Pasek and Paul are coming back to write the lyrics. I'm going to write the music, but we haven't gotten the book yet. So like we have to read that and then we have to do our work. It's going to take a lot of work, um, I think, to adapt it from a film into a stage musical. So at some point I hear soon, I'm told soon we're going to have to get going on it. Um, that's going to be coming up for me. Um, so that might end up taking my time until Damien's next movie is ready for me. But yeah, theoretically, I, I think it would be I think it would be a good thing for me creatively to work with somebody else. I think, um, you know, to work in a different system, to try a different sense, to work with somebody else's sensibility. I think that would be like a, a great adventure. It could be fun. It could be very frustrating and scary. I've heard a lot of horror stories from my, you know, composer colleagues about um, uh, things that have gone wrong. Um, or that have just been frustrating that I've been luckily very insulated from. Um, that's another part of it too. I feel like Damien has protected me from a lot of very difficult situations that could have come up. If I were with a, working with a filmmaker, I wasn't so close with and didn't have so much history um, with. So I am scared. I'm apprehensive. I do think that uh, it's a good thing to do things you're scared of doing. I think like getting out of your comfort zone is a good thing. So creatively and in all sorts of ways, I think it would be a good thing for me to do. It just, it hasn't the right thing in time. It just hasn't happened yet, but maybe it will. Well, I want you to know that the audience will be here for it. We love your work. We cannot wait to hear more, whoever it is with. It doesn't matter. And Justin, I want to reiterate once again, uh, you should be getting all the accolades in the world for your work, not just on this, but literally everything you do, because everything you do, the time, the effort, the way that you've explained it here to me today, it's there. It's all there in the final piece. And I hope you don't have uh, any regrets ever, because it truly is incredible uh, what you have accomplished. And um yeah, I, I want to thank you for the time here today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. It was great talking to you. You as well. Hopefully it's not another four or five years or anything like that before <laughs> we can reconnect again. So, all right. Thank you so much. Have a good, nice rest of your day. All right. Take care. You too. I can't help but wonder. What's next? I am a star. I think you want to become a star. Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am. There's so much more to be done. Whoa! Stop, stop. <laughs> this place you call home is the most magical place in the world. Fuck yeah! Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. I love. I like your podcast. It's oh. a. I like to listen. Um, there's a couple that I listen to, and it's yours and mm -hmm. Matt Bellany's. The oh, town. Thank you. Yeah. That means so much. Thank yeah. you. They're, they're just. It's kind of. It's like if you're not reading the Hollywood Reporter, or it, it's like it's a. I listen to it when I'm working out. To you know, and it's like it's just a way to keep tabs on what's going on. And otherwise, I wouldn't. I'd be completely clueless. And now I feel like I'm in the know. So it's good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, there is so much these days. It is like impossible to stay on top of everything. Yeah.
Okay, so I wanted to start by asking, obviously you have so much iconic work thus far. You've worked with the Coen brothers and Steven Spielberg and of course Damien before. And I'm curious, what set Babylon apart from the other projects that you've been a part of in the past? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The script was different than anything I had ever read before. I happen to believe it's one of the best original screenplays ever written. I mean, I when I read it for the first time, I was like, I was on location and I was sitting in my hotel room and I was like, what did I just read? And like, and kind of like, Damien, you know, like there was some really uh, decadent things in the script and but it really what what was even more visceral for me was that it felt like a ride like it was really a fun read and my goal was always to have the the audience experience that same feeling that I had when I first read the script but just in a visual way but yeah the script was really very different and it was very large in scope and when I got you know when I got down to breaking it down and um I do this the same procedure for every script that I read, but you know, I real it's it's gigantic. It was definitely the biggest project I'd ever taken on, and that made it different as well. And then there were other challenges. It's huge. We were shooting during COVID. We had very limited resources because it's not a movie with previous IP. It's mm-hmm. not gonna get a Marvel budget. We had a third of the budgets of some of the other movies that are is large in scope um and and then because of covid damien the one of the things we had to do was to absorb the covid costs uh, but on the other hand how lucky were we that paramount said yes because like you even though it was limited and we were like constantly rubbing two pennies together the fact that we had the opportunity to make this movie in 2021 was a gift that I will always cherish because, you know, I feel like it's going to happen less and less. A movie like this will be greenlit with fewer and fewer frequency. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but there there were lots of things that made it different. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, my approach is always the same. Mm-hmm. It's reading the script, breaking down the script, and starting with research. So... And and you kind of touched on the scope, and I've been curious for a long time since seeing it, if there was a certain scene that presented, like, the biggest costuming challenge to you. Like, I think of the costume picture that Brad Pitt's starring in and all those Skid Row extras, if, like, that was really tough or any other moment. Um, They were all challenging in a really great, and um, I, I enjoyed the challenge so much. It was just, uh, but I wouldn't say there's, they were all epically challenging for me like I'm not you know like the battlefield was I remember when I first read it I that was the one thing that I asked one of the first questions I asked Damien was because he script it's scripted there's a thousand men on the battlefield and I said you know are we really doing that are you tiling and he was like there is no CGI in this movie 
So it was a thousand people. And so that was the first hurdle. How do I do like, let's decide what we want that battlefield to look like. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to, in a inexpensive way, build the costumes and make, you know, create the costumes that we need to for that sequence so that it's also in keeping with the research, which is like how the the artistry and the integrity of how silent films were made and how they the costumes in some of those early silent films I find to be so beautiful and very unique in a way that there's like a naivete, but an artistry to them that I was trying to like um, inhabit and do. And so, but yeah, like the skid row. Yeah. It's that was challenging. The, the party, the first party sequence, um, the Wallach party, it's just, it was just expanding like a creative outlet for me and just you know once I had done all the research and you know you've probably read this that Damien's challenge said what he said to me and the other department heads was like if you're researching and you're finding photos that are from the 20s that don't necessarily look like the 20s what that's where we want to start Mm -hmm. and so we had thousands and thousands and thousands of inspirational photos and some of them were from paintings and drawings and photographs and we, you know, you kind of like, it became like a bank of memory, you know, like, or storage, like it was all in my iCloud storage, but it was also in my brain. And so like, if I was trying, like when we were dressing people for the the Wallach party and we were like, oh, this person would walk in and we would dress for character. And Mm -hmm. this person needs a gigantic headdress. And this person needs to be dressed like a deck of cards and we're going to use this spider idea on these two women. And we kind of built, we built some things that we just loved so much from the research and we recreated them and Mm -hmm. other things we rented and other things we built in the shop that, that Wallach party was a challenge and, uh, but a great one, like, come on, it was so much fun. It was like one person after another was The women were more fun than the men. I will give you that. But the men we even had some fun with. But the men, the general idea Damien wanted to stick with was that they come in a tuxedo and they sort of devolve and we could add really fun like king hats and boas. And, you know, the idea was switching, gender switching, code switching, just it's a free for all and it's a freedom and a a debauchery that we wanted to sort of put across in that scene. Um, and then we had other parties. We had the pool party at Jack's house where it was a little bit um, a little bit more um, clothed, but everybody ended up in the pool. And so how you know, that can't be any rentals. And so we were manufacturing every single thing and um, draping constantly. Like we were having fittings until I remember fitting for that party and just fitting all day. Like someone would walk in and be like, okay, this is the dress you're going to wear. And, but I, again, it was challenging, but I, I, I had so much fun. I mean, I've never had that kind of, I just was like cranking it out one after another. And, and that was really gratifying. And um, yeah. And then the pink raincoats was a challenge. Like I was, you know, I was very particular about what that texture needed to be. And there's a whole story. I don't know if you want me to go into that about how we achieved that, but that was like, we started swatching and it was like, there is nothing in the world that looks like a 1920s raincoat. And it was all too plasticky and shiny. And, and I was walking through the shop and one of my 
my supervisor, Laura, super, uh, Laura Walford, had her kit on a table and on top of the kit was a poncho, like those little ponchos that used to be in the rain packet. And I think it probably was like a 20 year old one. And I opened the packet and it was like, it had texture and it was like, it had a vinyl, a feel to it, but, um, but it had, um, there was something old school about it. And I was like, that's kind of what we need in pink. And Laura had this idea to go look for shower curtain liners. And we found them at the 99 cent store and they had the same kind of texture and they took dye. And so we would send people, everybody who lived near one, or if we sent our PAs and throughout the course of like a two week period, we gathered probably four to 600 of these shower curtain linings, the same one from the 99 cent store. So they would all dye the same. And then we had um, one of our cutters, one of, it was actually one of our vendors who she was like, okay, this is a first I've never worked with a, with a shower curtain liner. And she built the raincoats and we had to get all the findings that close it and the leather strap. And then the milliner had to make the hats out of the same stuff. But that was one case where Damien wanted to recreate footage that's from that's actual footage from MGM. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's wonderful if you watch it. And it's like when MGM introduced their silent stars that they were going to start talking and they're all singing, singing in the rain and the camera pans kind of right and left. And there's Buster Keaton and Marion Davis and uh, Joan Crawford. And it's like, and they've all got these pink, well, it has a pink hue and we just went with it because that's what Damien, that's his visual of it. And who knows? It could have been just colorized, but um, and then there's a giant arc in the background and like fake rain. And and so that was another challenge. I mean, it was it, there was never a day like every day on Babylon was like, OK, that that just happened. And you would never there was never like a moment to be like, oh, OK, you know, I'm going to smoke a cigarette or have a coffee, which I don't smoke, by the way. I'm just <laughs> kidding. But like it was like, what's next? And it was like, you know, you're constantly running. It was never like, OK. That happened. And now we have like, we can breathe. It was no breathing. It was like on your market set, go every single day. And, but I loved every minute of it. I feel like that's very befitting of a film like this too, which is very high energy almost the entire time. And yeah. Just so yeah. Chaotic, and you can feel it like it's so layered. I think like I, I was telling somebody this before that, um, you know, the, he, his script is so dense and it's like, there's, a guy on stilts, there's a circus performer, there's two um, men in blackface, like total racism, you know, being exposed, like, you know, it's like a line and you're accomplishing each of those things. But when we're filming it, it's done like this film score is already like pre-recorded. So it's wonderful. Like on a lot of these days, we would be setting the scenes to the pre-recorded film score. But there's a lot of movement and energy in the camera. I love the camera. I think Linus did an amazing work. Yeah. I think his work is astonishing in this film. But it's often moving very quickly. And I mean, I watched the movie. I've seen it four times in the theater. And uh, then finally, I had to watch it on at my house, on my computer, in slow motion. Because I was like, I don't see, where's the guy on stilts? And like, we built this whole costume. And he's like... And then I, then when I saw it in slow motion, then I was like, oh, there it is. I can see it in the, in the pan shot, but um, just little things like that. So it was, um, it was a lot of, 
there's a lot of dense and the production design is the same way. Like that's just so layered. And so what the ultimate end product is, is that you feel like you're looking at a complete and whole world. Like if you turn that corner, you're still going to see it. And if you turn the, the camera that way, you're still going to see this world. And that's what I'm really proud of. It's like, you may not land on it for very long, but you know, and you sense that it's there. Yeah. And obviously you've worked with Damien before on La La Land, of course, and First Man. Um, mm-hmm. And I was curious what, keeps you returning to this partnership? What's really fulfilling about working on a Damien Chazelle film for you? Well, first of all, I think he is the a, the singular voice of his generation. I believe that with all my heart. I think he's um, he's so young and I think he's so talented and he he's an auteur and that's what attracts me. Like I, I'm a, I, I really am attracted to projects by the director probably more than the script. I mean, I love a good script, but I feel like it is a director's medium. And um, I loved Whiplash so much. When I saw Whiplash, I was like, I want to, I have to work with that guy. And um, I just waited until he was taking meetings for Babylon, not for Babylon, for for La La Land. And um, I took a cut and pay and I was like, I will do anything to work on this movie. I have to, I have to do this. And he's, first of all, you know, he was in La La Land and Babylon are original screenplays. First Man's not, but he reworked it so much that so he he's a writer director, which is also very appealing to me. It's um to yeah. me they they know and understand the material so well that there's not an answer that they a question they can't answer, and mm-hmm. that's the case for him. And he's so well prepared. He knows what the movie is going to look like and sound like. I mean, not to the point of being rigid. But he has it all in his head, like editorially, he knows like I'm cutting there. This is what this scene is about. He so like just whip smart, brilliant. I hate, you know, I think that word is overused, but I think he's brilliant. And um, I think that he works harder than anybody I've ever worked with. And you want to work as hard as he does. You have to and you want to. and it doesn't because he's such a hard worker you're it's just comes freely as you know as a as a as a co-worker as a participant as a department head i think that he's so communicative like he he will he he's able he's so articulate so much more than i am right now like he knows how to word things concisely and effectively so that you understand exactly what he's talking about mm-hmm. um like I said, he's super decisive, which that is, you know, that's not always the case with directors. Some people have a really hard time making decisions and that is huge. And, um, and it helps save money and it helps make it um, cost effective. And so he's also used to working with budgets. Like we didn't have enough money on La La Land. We didn't really have enough money on First Man. And we really didn't have enough money on Babylon. And we were constantly like, if he had not been as open, as communicative, as um, descriptive and able to communicate with his department heads as well as he does, mm-hmm. we would not have been able to accomplish that film. And um, I find him to be a visionary and I will follow, I would do anything and go anywhere with him. I just feel like one of the luckiest designers in the world to be able to have collaborated with him three times. And I hope he asks me again and I never take it for granted because I've worked with the Cohen brothers for 30 years and I don't take it for granted. So I, you can't, I think that's a miss. That would be a really bad thing to do. So if he ever asked me to do another movie again, I would say yes in a heartbeat. And um, 
I'm just, yeah. And I love him. I just love him. He has a good sense of humor and he laughs and, but he's serious, you know, and he's intense and, but yeah, I, 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 you know, it's pretty singular. My experience working with him, I think he's a, a genius. I also had a question kind of about Nelly's outfits in particular. I know some people have like noted that there might be some like modern-ish taste in some of them as well, especially like her red dress, the kind of scrappy one and some of her earlier outfits before she's kind of like prim and proper towards the end. And I was curious what influence you may have taken a little bit past the 20s as well to kind of influence her aesthetic or if it was really rooted in that time. It was really rooted in that time. But I think that that the reason why it feels modern is that initial request and and um sort of initiative that Damien gave us was like find these photo find something that that speaks to you that's from the 20s that doesn't look 20s I have there's a picture of Anna Mae Wong in a blouse that wraps around her neck that just Mm -hmm. covers her breasts that's where I got the idea I mean I wish I could take absolute credit for that but I saw that and I was like Oh, that's going to work on Margot. Mm-hmm. And then, as the um, then, there's another photo I have of this woman in, from the 20s, and she's got a little tap pant on and a and like just a drape of a blouse. And I was like, when we saw the choreography develop, I was like, she needs to wear shorts. She needs to be and and it's like it's basically a pair of of 20s underwear. But yeah. and so I found a real pair, and we copied the shape, and you know modified it for the dance and for flattering purposes but those are two things that existed in research that I found and I just yeah. my idea was to connect them and I guess that's the modernity of it but again I if you want I can draw up some of these there's this woman that's in this shot that she has on she doesn't have on that exact top but she has on a barely a top that is like combined with these tap pants and just standing there in a pair of high heels and it's a studio shot. I mean, I'm not saying she's walking down the street, but to me, that gave me the Liberty to, um, I was like, well, I love that. Mm -hmm. Damien loves that. And let's, let's have a go. And, you know, I found the, the fabric came from, I when you know, we sourced fabrics and clothing and rentals from all over the world. Um, and, but we did get some really lovely, like, packages of vintage fabrics and sleeves and a scarf and just these things that became real pieces and I the the fabric of that red was a Mm -hmm. like it was a two-sided it was almost like an oblong scarf Mm -hmm. um I mean it was faced so it was um had two layers and it was just this gorgeous red and one side had an embossed like abstracted floral print and it was in really good condition. It must have been stored in like pristine condition. And and red seemed to be the right color for that opening number yeah. and that opening look. And the first thing we did was we took a piece of it and that's what came around here. And when we had a, this much left, you know, like a yard left, maybe not even, and we made the tap pants out of it. And then we dyed. The idea of the sarong was um, that came out of some of the watching the dance rehearsals it was like, because originally I was going in something that needed movement and and I was like, well, instead of the clothing doing the movement itself, like instead of the short and the and the and this this top, what if there's a sarong around her waist that can do the movement for her? And then there's also the interesting, like uh, Margot, who is just the most wonderful collaborator, collaborator and actor that to fit pretty much in the world, like, and she looks good in everything, which 
helped a great deal with Nellie because it gave me so much freedom, you know, like, um, but she had an approach to her character and this developed during our fittings because she was such a trooper every week she would come in and we would have a fitting sometimes twice a week. And they wouldn't, one was like a marathon one, but otherwise they would be like an hour long and we'd like knock out one or two costumes or work on one or two costumes. And during, in the beginning, um, one of the things she had said to me was like, I'm approaching, and I think she might do this with all of her characters, but I know for sure for Nellie, was that she associated certain um, animals with certain scenes. And for the opening, she wanted to be like an octopus. And, you know, and that was developing because of the arm movements, I think. And, and that was like, oh, that sarong is a tentacle. Mm -hmm. And like, it just was like, ding, 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 like little costume magic happening in the fitting room. And she would just, she had this, once we put the sarong with that outfit and she knew some of her moves and it just happened right in the fitting room. And like, well, there's Nellie's dance right there. It's totally going to work. And then, so that's how we had landed on it. It's kind of like this combination of um, what the dance needed, what her character's approach to that scene was also what you needed to tell. It's, it's scrappy. It needs to kind of look like it's cobbled together. She doesn't have money. She's living in squalor. You see that in the later scene. So I wanted it to look like, okay, she's took this thing around her neck and she put on a pair of underwear. And, um, or to me, it was actually tap pants that she probably lifted from when she was a dancer in New York. Like that was sort of her backstory is that she did some dancing there. And so, and yeah, that's her. And then her second look is a look that's given to her by the studio, right? Like she goes, she has that scene where she's put her own makeup on and it's a disaster, but she's wearing a dress that I don't know that Nellie would have ever picked out for herself. It's like, I knew the dance to that because we were watching the choreography and she had a lot of shoulder movement. And so I was like, oh, we should make it a boat neck and, and kind of make it so that Nellie makes it her own. She mm -hmm. takes this sort of drop waist dress, which is a, is a was a very popular style in the 20s, but we used it very little in our movie because there was no need for it. There's certain characters like Constance, her co-star, wears a very proper 20s dress on, in several of those scenes at the back lot of Kinescope. But but anyway, the idea was that Nellie got this dress from the studio and she was like, what is this? It's like not sexy at all. And so she like manipulates the shoulder and there's that scene where she does that and she exposes her breast. Yeah. And she takes the skirt, which is like just above right at the knee, which was like kind of the new thing in 1926. And she hikes it up to where you see her matching tap pants, which are the same cut as the red ones that she wears in the opening. So it's like I was trying to tie it together to say, like, yes, mm -hmm. this is what the underwear is of this time period. And this is what was given to her either in New York with this red pair or right here on this set in this light blue pair. So that's kind of the idea of, and, and then the second and third changes, they're all set changes, if I, if memory serves me correctly. Like she wears, she's icing her nipples in this knit. And so I knew she was going to be icing her nipples. And there's a, there's a photo I have of, I forget what actress it is, but she's in a knit dress and you can see her nipples. And I was like, if I could substantiate it and I'm is substantiated, if I could legitimize it, I, I felt like. I don't know, maybe it's the costume designer in me. I really felt like I needed to support my work with research, pictorial research. Um, so I wasn't going totally off the rails. Um, and so that's kind of what I did. And then there's a scene where she's like, I'm ready for my close up. And that was like, originally it was supposed to be in front of a World War One battlefield. And 
I just wanted it to feel like the Italian countryside. And that's why I did another off the shoulder. It was just a lot about exposing. She's like exposing her flesh, like she works it. And so when she has a chance to voice her opinion, which I think by that point in the script, she does, she's asking for a up. She's like, yeah, I want it shorter. And I want it, I want to see my shoulders and maybe a little, you know, chest and uh, bosom. So it's all very character driven. Like to me, I hope it feels like it's, um, it's character driven. Like that was my intention. And with all the characters, it's all, yeah, of course I wanted it to look fabulous, but it was all influenced by the script and, and, and influenced by the character's development and arc. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of talking with Margot during her fittings and stuff. And I was curious how much collaboration there is with the actors as you're developing this look. Because, of course, there's Damien's input, too. But I just didn't know how much like Diego and Margot and Brad had a say in kind of what Manny and Nellie and Jack were going to look like. They um, I they were everybody was very collaborative. I think like Manny had such a specific arc and Diego was so new to it that he was very accepting of like, okay, in the beginning, it's sort of ill-fitting and you have one outfit. And when you go to work with Jack, you've borrowed your tuxedo. When you go to work with Jack, he gives you one of his old sport coats and that's all you have until you become a studio executive. And then you go to where Irving Thalberg gets his suits made, which is Max McGillis character. And I literally went to the same tailor who had been you know, absorbing all this, like 20, these 20 suit samples that I we lent him to like, look at how the tailoring is. This is what we need to do, but this is a size like 34 and Manny is a 41 long. And so Manny was, he was very open to it. And whenever there was a choice to be made, he had very good instincts. Like man, Diego knew that script. He knew everybody's lines. He knew every single beat. So there were choices like whether his tie is loosened or how dirty he would be. He was so um, helpful with that because his, his intuition was spot on. And Brad um, was very early on with Brad. I was like, I think that, you know, the influence was a, actually more modern and like the inspiration for his character is, is Marcello Mastriani and La Dolce Vita, but like a 20s version. And um, but very early on, I suggested that I think Brad and or Jack wears tuxedos to these parties because that was sort of what you did. But I think when he goes to set and when he's at home, I'd rather keep him out of suits and more like elegant sportswear, which was becoming very popular in the twenties. And, and Brad loved that idea. And he loved, you know, I don't think he, it's not how he dresses in his real life, but he loved his clothes and just sort of was, you know, the first, our first fitting, I had the white knit sweater made and I made the cream pants, you know, as, and I just, I was like, instead of showing him the reference, there was a reference from that. I was like, I just put it on him and he was like, oh, I like this, you know, and he's just, he's got a lot of, um, he has, to me, he's very fashion forward in his life and has a lot of guts the way he dresses and is not afraid to take chances. And he was not afraid, like he absolutely loved the idea of the cream uh, for the party. And, and so he, we were just very much in sync and he loved his clothes and um, it was sort of an effortless and collaborative experience and um we didn't have to fit him quite as often i think we fit him two or three times at the yeah three times i think but um nelly's were a little bit more complicated because she had his arc he sort of just is very elegant the whole time and 
And we made every piece of clothing for him with, I think, one exception. I found this. He wears a robe. It's it's a look I love from um, like old films, which is like a man in a shirt and maybe a cravat and a trouser. And then he has a a silk bathrobe over it. And we found a vintage, this coppery rust with an embossed um, self-print. And it was in perfect, pristine condition. And it fit him perfectly. It was like, it was weird how like shoulder to shoulder, everything. And and um, that was the one vintage piece that he wore that was not made. But otherwise, from head to toe, his clothes, including his shoes, were made for him. And um, and they and the fit was what was important. And the knits and like we had a, a knitter in Los Angeles who worked really closely with me about the gauge of the of what yarn we were using and the gauge of the stitching and just to sort of mimic and try to replicate like what the knits from the, the time period were. And it was, they were just heavily textured and, and thick. And I was just really happy with how they turned out. And Lee Jun Lee was very, she has a lot of costume changes and she's, she has to me like the, the clothing that she chooses. And then there's the clothing that is chosen for her by when she has to perform. And to me, she's very elegant and very much inspired by Anna Mae Wong. And she was a delight to work with too, like just so poised and has such a wonderful figure and so statuesque. And because of her dancer background, she just can like exude this like glamour in the clothes, like that pink Shingo Zen that she, I I don't know anybody else who could rock that the way she did. And she just like moved like a cat in that tango. And I was like, you are incredible. Like she made me look good, you know, both her and Margot, both, they made me look good. And um, so it was very collaborative, but I feel like there was also uh, people knew that I had been in, in it for such a long time. Like I'd been thinking about the movie for the year prior because we postponed for the year, you know, we were supposed to go in 2020 and then we didn't go until 2021. And so it was, I was so in it, like, people would meet me for the first time in the fitting room. And I'd just be like, <laughs> like I had every, all this, like, and just boards up. Like I had, I don't know, a couple hundred character boards and scene boards just because yes, it was all on my phone, but I was like, I felt it's important to have it in the room because then you're not like digitally, like looking on a little screen and you can just kind of paper the room with these ideas. And that's what we did for everybody. And so they would walk in and be like, okay and just like looking at all of this visual information and it was I mean sometimes I I might have overwhelmed people but it was never on purpose it was just like there's so much like I just want to show you what I know you know and but people knew that I had been in it for such a long time that they kind of were like okay like they were my specimen kind of and I could just dress them accordingly and and Damien um, just looks at fitting photos. He's, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have time. Like he's busy prepping and doesn't have time to be in the fitting room. And, and it's a long private process. And so I appreciate that he doesn't come into the fitting. And then we just take lots of fitting photos and make decks and send it to him. And, and he responded with that. And then we would have meetings like when we were, especially with Nelly, not, I mean, but once we started having fittings, I would plot like, this is where I think this goes. This is where I think this goes. And I would send in the decks in sequential order and, um, and it worked perfectly. And that's how we've done it on the other films. Actually on first man, we would sometimes meet in the beginning of the week and kind of, he wanted to see, we saw the clothes on the rack because we were, 
in Atlanta and we were shooting in like some suburb. It was not for the space stuff. It was for the civilian part of the movie. And he, he kind of, it was nice for us to see like just the clothes like on a rack. But I think on this movie, I, it was probably too big and we didn't have time for that. And we did it digitally and it, and it worked out fine. And um, so that's sort of my process. And now that, that's usually how I work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and it seemed to work fine on this one as well. But everybody was collaborative and God, I cannot tell you how lovely our cast was. I mean, Jean Smart, she she came into the game. She was there. We had our first fitting with her on the day of our camera test. And so she was so patient because we developed her costumes like we did it in shooting order. Like I knew I plotted out her arc for her character, but we would do her costumes like two at a time. And she came in and fit every two weeks. And because yeah. hers were elaborate and there was milliner millinery was involved. We had hats for every change and costumes for every change. And um, she never repeats. And uh, it was, it was a lot. And she was super patient. And she, like, like I said, she'd come in every two weeks. I don't know. She has like 15 changes. So she had, you know, it was yeah. a lot and a lot of work on their part. And everybody was just, in it to win it like nobody she never there was never an eye rolling or do I have to it was like yeah I'll be there and I appreciated that so much from the whole I love that I love my crew and I love the cast so much I can't even tell you from the day players to I and the day players would walk in and they'd be like like so excited to be on this movie and they would be like I'll do whatever you want me to do you know and like there's so many great people that would be wonderfully surprised by what they were wearing and just had fun with it, you know, and it was a lot of like 250 speaking parts. So it's 250 characters that you're developing. And I take it very seriously. Like I do them head to toe and really get into it. And I do lots of choices because for my own self, I'm trying to, sometimes I'm trying to work it out. And it was, yeah, it was, like I said, it was a dream come true, that job. It really does take a village. I'm like, especially a movie like this, there's just nothing can go wrong. It all has to be in order and everyone has to be working together. And yeah, it looks, it looks seamless on screen. So thank you. Thank you. I had a wonderful crew. Like I couldn't have done it without my crew and um, each and every person. And it wasn't a huge crew. It was like, we had an assistant, a supervisor, Adria Dyer. We had two fitters for extras. We had set costumers and that was it. And a coordinator but it wasn't like we had tons and tons of people was we had a, we had cutters that that really made it all possible like i had car- the two carinés that i called them that did um lily's clothes and all the female clothes and then we had dale wibben who was on for like maybe 2 months and he built margot's clothes wow. and then he went on to another project and he's they're both masters and but the amount of work that they cranked out of our workroom i can't even tell you it was just astonishing like from bearded ladies to musicians with like had this idea of like balls attached to his chest with this giant wired collar. And it's just like, it was fun for her. I think Carrie Nay said it was the most fun. She's never worked as hard as like me, but she's never had more fun. And everybody just brought their A game. And like you said, it took a village and I just am so thankful and grateful to my crew that uh, they helped and they never, everybody was just like rolling their sleeves up. Like, okay, let's do this every day. I have one quick last question, but it's about how you said before, this is like the biggest project you've been a part of. And I'm curious, you know, what do you, where do you go from here? What would you like to tackle? Whether it's like a new era, a new genre, some subject matter, just what's the next thing? 
I don't know what my next thing is. I mean, I'm currently on a project and it's just about ending. And it's it was a project that was a really fun, lighthearted period mm-hmm. design job. And I got to dress Scarlett Johansson. Wow. And she's like my little Barbie doll in this movie. She's just like, she has like 50 changes and she's just like, I love dressing her. And she's, I've worked with her almost in every stage of her life. Like I did Ghost World when oh. she was a teen. Yeah. And I did The Man Who Wasn't There, which was this black and white film that she did as another teenager. And it was like 1940s. It's I love it. It's a Coen Brother film from back in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then she was a young woman. I did Iron Man 2. And she's, it was her first time as Natasha. So I mm-hmm. did her first Black Widow. And then she was a mom, a new mom in Hail Caesar. Oh and God. she, I got to do her in a mermaid. And then she has that fabulous white outfit with the black mm-hmm. hat. And she has that scene with Jonah Hill and she's just fantastic in it. And she, um, she is producing this movie. And so I, I took it because I just, I'm, it was, it's been fun. It's kind of lighthearted and it's like, um, and it's a really fun, fun script and not heavy. And that felt like a good idea. But the next, I have no idea what's after that. And um, like I said, I hope that a director that I respect and want to work with or have worked with before gives me a call because um, like I said, that's, I do like to pick my movies by director, but who knows? I mean, it might be a script. I don't know. I want to try to work in Los Angeles because I'm trying to promote Los Angeles production. So that would be really um, key. It would be ideal for me. Um, but we'll see what happens. I have, whoops, I'm losing my computer. We'll see. I, 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 I'm, I would love another genre. I would love the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do a future that's not dystopic though. I feel like I've read a few scripts where it's like raining all the time and it's horrible in the future. And I don't know that I'm necessarily, I, I don't think I could live with that for six months or eight months. Um, I, I, I do have a positive, I am sort of a more positive person. And so like, but I would love to do the future where the future rocks and like, let's take it on and like make something new. And I would love to do 17th century, 16th century. I do like doing period. I feel like it's, um, it actually allows to be very creative in a period film. Um, but contemporary are great too. If they're character driven, um, I'm not a big uniform person. Like that's the one thing I do try to avoid. Um, and yeah, who knows? Who knows? I just, you know, you hope that it's it's a very crowded field. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really talented people. And I love that. I love that there's more and more people coming into the field of costume design. And uh, I'm I just younger and, I, you know, I'm getting up there. But, you know, I think I still have some many years of good films left in me. So uh, I'm not that old, but, you know, I've, I have been doing it since I was in my 20s. And so my resume reads. Um, it's pretty full, but I, I started designing early, but I, I, you know, I just, I'm always grateful when a project comes along and it's interesting to me and hopefully they'll keep on coming. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This was so informative and so interesting. I'm a huge fan of the film. So Good. Was- I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for taking the time. Yes, of course. Thank you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interview with the composer for Babylon, Justin Hurwitz, and Zoe Rose Bryant's interview with the costume designer, Mary Zofries, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. 
Justin Hurwitz and Mary Zofries are up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards in Best Original Score and Best Costume Design, respectively, while Babylon is also nominated for Best Production Design. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.